The Hamlet Podcast, episode 146. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. The previous episode ended just at the point that someone was coming in, interrupting Claudius and Laertes in their murderous conversation. Different editions of the play give very different opinions for the four syllables that announce who's arrived. The quarto says, but stay, what noise? suggesting a sound off stage, while the first two folios both say, How now, sweet queen? It's Gertrude that now enters. There's hardly any chatter, as her news is too bleak for courtesies. One woe doth tread upon another's heel, so fast they follow. Your sister's drowned, Laertes. The Queen likens the various pieces of bad news to runners in a race, kicking at each other's heels in their speed to arrive. Ophelia has drowned. Laertes is understandably shocked by this. He falters and only delivers half a line. Drowned? Oh, where? There's clearly no right question to ask in such a circumstance but Laertes asks where it might have happened, presumably so that he can go immediately and find his sister. This prompts a surprisingly beautiful, if harrowing, description from Gertrude. There is a willow grows aslant a brook that shows his hoar leaves in the glassy stream. There with fantastic garlands did she make of crow flowers, nettles, daisies and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. There on the pendant boughs her coronet weeds clambering to hang an envious sliver broke, when down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. Her clothes spread wide. And mermaid-like a while they bore her up, which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element. But long it could not be till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. Gertrude's depiction of Ophelia's death is one of the most famous images in Hamlet, and in the death-obsessed 19th century, it was an extremely popular subject for paintings. Along with one we'll come to in the next scene, it's an image that will spring to mind for many people when they think of this play. But within this description, there are a good few little nuggets and hints that we should take a look at, as they suggest various problems that will need to be solved in the final act of the play. When we last saw Ophelia, she was distributing various herbs, weeds and wildflowers to the assembled company at court. Sometimes a production might choose to show just how broken her mind is by having her distribute items that in no way match what she's describing. A memorable example was the Ninagawa production in which she gave away her dolls. Ophelia continues chasing her flowers as far as the scene of her death. Gertrude goes into very extensive detail as she describes it. She's already told us the outcome, that Ophelia is drowned, but somehow she tries to soften the circumstances as much as possible. She tells Laertes of a willow tree that's growing at an angle over a brook, 
or a river. The trees' white or grey leaves reflect in the water. With this much detail we can see why so many artists have painted the scene. The word hoar is an adjective associated with the cold. The hoar frost is the most frequent example, meaning the white or grey frost that likewise appears on leaves. The next phrase is one we need to decipher, because the way we read it will determine whether or not we're to believe that Ophelia ended her own life. Therewith fantastic garlands did she make, of crow flowers, nettles, daisies and long purples. This reading suggests that she was attempting to make fantastic garlands, her wreaths of weeds, out of the willow branches, decorating them with the crow flowers, daisies and so on. The folio text, however, reads like this. There, with fantastic garlands, did she come, of crow flowers, nettles, daisies and long purples. This version implies that she came specifically to this place above the water. Gertrude gets a little sidetracked here as she describes the long purples, which we can assume are a kind of orchid, or a flower that has features that look like something anatomical. We know this because Gertrude says that liberal shepherds give it a grosser name than long purples, while cold maids, chaste young ladies who aren't as crude as those freewheeling shepherds, call these flowers dead man's fingers. I have to wonder if Gertrude catches herself when she mentions this death. Even if it's a politer name for the flower, it's pretty bad timing to name it. For anyone interested in finding out more about what this curious flower might be, there are numerous photographs if you Google long purples and Ophelia. If you're really interested in this botanic mystery, there's an article from the late 1970s that goes into extreme detail by a researcher called Charlotte F. Otten in the Shakespeare Quarterly. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, along with descriptions of the various other flowers. Now Gertrude gets back to the story. There, at the willow tree, she clambers to hang her coronet weeds on its pendant boughs, but one of the branches breaks underneath her. In a cruel but brilliant image, Shakespeare gives us the notion that the branch breaks because it is envious. It's as though we should think that the tree itself wanted to harm Ophelia as she scrambled to climb it. Gertrude's sentences all seem to be back to front. She has important information to share, but it's also distressing to her and to those she's addressing. Like poor Ophelia, her phrases are poorly balanced and they fall. There, on the pendant boughs, her coronet weeds clambering to hang, an envious sliver broke. Went down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. Ophelia falls into the water. Her clothes spread wide, and mermaid-like they bore her up a while. Ophelia's clothes fan out around her, as clothes will do when they hit the water. For a few moments they seem to help Ophelia to float. More distressingly, Ophelia herself doesn't seem to realise what's happening. She's singing little tunes as though she's totally unaware of her distress, the danger that she's in. She sings as though she's native to the water. Which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element, to the water. Another inconsistency in the various texts is that some of them say she's singing tunes, easy enough to understand, 
but some texts have it that she's singing lauds. This would mean that Ophelia is singing prayers rather than the snatches of crazy tunes we saw her singing earlier. Even though there was a method to the mad songs she sang, they certainly weren't religious. Again, the only reason we might want it to be lauds instead of tunes is to prevent us from thinking that this was in any way deliberate. Even if she survived a few moments in this curiously beautiful state, as if helped by mermaids singing as she floated in the water as her garlands drifted away, it couldn't last. Her clothes, now soaked, become heavier and heavier as they drink the brook water and they pull her under, stopping her pretty song and dragging her to death. But long it could not be till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. This description is memorable, and understandably it has become famous. But we have to wonder, was Gertrude an eyewitness? Did she actually see this happening? Is that how she can describe it? And if so, couldn't she have helped? I don't know if I'd go as far as saying that she killed Ophelia or wanted to, but certainly there are benefits to the younger woman's removal. Ophelia has proved a liability. All of her songs and shouts in the mad scene have a bedrock of uncomfortable truth. And how might Hamlet react if he sees this girl, the love of his life, out of her mind? And of course there's the trouble with Laertes, a hothead intent on revenge already, and who has a mob behind him. If he were to get any more bad news that cannot clearly be explained as an accident, surely he might stage the coup they feared earlier in the act. Gertrude thus has quite a few reasons to take care in the way she describes Ophelia's death. We can never quite know if she's made the whole story up, or if she's watched it happen, or if she even brought Ophelia to the waterside and encouraged her to climb the tree. It's the kind of mystery we often have fun discussing in rehearsal. The questions a scene like this can raise often give very interesting shading to the way an actor approaches a role. Whatever you think of Gertrude and the truth of this story, the net result is that the girl has died. One tiny thing that might speak in Gertrude's defence is that she calls Ophelia the poor wretch. She also called Hamlet the exact same thing earlier in the play. She'll say in the next act that she had hoped they would be married. But of course this is not to be. The scene will end with Laertes' reaction to all of this. Just when Claudius had won him over, this fresh wave of bad news comes crashing in. And we'll see how Laertes and Claudius respond in the next episode. For now, thank you as always for tuning in, and do be sure to check out all the botanical information on the show notes page at thehamletpodcast.com. Mind yourselves, take care, and I'll speak to you next time.